The pursuit of happiness is a fundamental right guaranteed in the Constitution and defined in the Declaration of Independence to freely pursue joy and live life in a way that makes you happy, as long as you know how to use the laws to achieve what you want. This changes things a bit, doesn't it? This means that in order to do what makes you happy, you have to know some laws, and that's why I'm here. Welcome to Lovely, a show about law, love, and life. Live a happy life using the universal law of love at the heart of your decision-making. And of course, real laws too. I'm your host, Bahar Ansari, a hippie and happy lawyer turned IT founder turned, well, me, a consciously creative counselor. This show is built on one simple principle, that us as human beings do things for only two reasons, love, our ultimate self-fulfillment, or laws, natural and man-made. What transcends both is creativity. It's innovation. It's love empowered by laws. It's love. Be love, learn law, spread love. I'm Jess. I am a third year law student at Santa Clara Law currently. I'm in my final semester, so wrapping that up. I started getting into internet law actually when I was in college. So, you know, beforehand, I've always been interested in the internet. It was something that I loved since I was a kid and speech and debate was always really interesting to me. So a lot of people kind of thought that I was going to go be a lawyer and like that was going to be my path. And I did journalism and all this, like all this kind of like legal adjacent work in high school. But I decided to pursue computer science instead in college. I'm from the Virginia, Fairfax, Virginia area. So kind of the DC metro area out there. It's not like California where you could just kind of do anything. Like people want to make money, like you kind of become a software engineer and you work for the government. So that's what I decided to do. Didn't like it, was not very good at it. I'm not a huge coder fan, so wasn't super into it. But I discovered in my senior year of college, I was required to take an internet law class. And so that's where I started doing research about topics like Section 230, you know, free speech online. And I kind of found this niche area of like, oh my gosh, I can take everything that I love about the internet and everything that I'm passionate about when it comes to free speech. And I can sort of combine it into this like legal background and career that I can pursue. So while I was studying in college for that class, you know, I happened upon Professor Eric Goldman's blog, who is a thought leader. He's a thought leader on Section 230 and on internet law. I ended up reaching out to him in my senior year of college, asked to meet him. And from there, he became my mentor and then later my advisor when I finally decided to start going to law school. I attended Santa Clara Law. So I've been working and kind of studying Section 230 under him since I started in law school as his research assistant and just as his mentee slash protege. That's kind of where my expertise comes from. You know, throughout law school, I have spoken and written extensively about Section 230. I've built my entire brand and really my like my law school and legal professional identity around this law and around um, content moderation and online free expression. Like that's just become what I've decided that I was going to pursue. So, you know, I've done lots of things with that professionally. I worked for Twitter as a legal intern my first law school summer. After that, I worked for Tech Freedom in DC. They're a think tank that's dedicated to sort of these like free market online expression type work that I do. They're very pro 230, for example. And then after that, I recently joined Google. I joined them in June of last year and I joined their trust and safety team. So I work on writing content moderation policy and enforcement and implementation of those policies for our products and a lot of other trust and safety related work as well. So I've kind of had an extensive background in both the advocacy think tank side and the industry side, as well as the academic and research side of these topics as well. And I do have to kind of say as well, like, you know, my opinions are mine. They're not reflective of Google or any of my past employers as well. 
it's a super interesting story that you on your own with even just a little bit of law school experience understood what your interests are and really started specializing that early on. It's not that common. But let's get into Section 230. That's really the conversation we're here for. Um, I don't know a lot of information about it. So I do want to start by asking you, what are the top few? I'm not going to put a number on it. You decide to tell me. What are the top few most interesting things about Section 230 that would surprise people? I think the number one thing that surprises people when I have conversations about 230, and you, it's funny that you framed it top interesting things, I would say is that Section 230 is a really boring law. And that surprises people because we've seen it constantly come up in the past year or so with Donald Trump and with the mostly conservative side, um, you know, calling for its repeal or for amending it. And we've seen something in the 20s for different legislative like proposals about doing something about Section 230. But in reality, Section 230 is a really boring law. And I say that because Section 230 is really just positioned as what a lot of people understand is it's positioned as a fast lane for the First Amendment in a lot of ways. It does a lot of other things, but that's kind of the main procedural advantage of 230. And so what I mean by that is you'll see a lot of people that'll come out and say that Section 230 gives websites these rights to moderate their content as they see fit, or it's the law that lets websites decide what kind of content they want to have in their services. And that's actually not correct. As any law student, second year law students taking con law knows, websites are private entities and private entities have a First Amendment right to editorial discretion. And so, yes, websites like Facebook and Twitter and Google, just like traditional media companies, have a First Amendment right to decide what kind of content they want to have on their website or what they want to host or what they don't want to host. They even have a right to fact check that content. It's turning out that a lot of people are realizing that they may not like the First Amendment. They may not like how it's applied by these companies. Where does Section 230 come into play in all this? Really, it's civil procedure. So Section 30 just simply says websites are not liable for third-party content. And why is that important? Well, because, you know, as we know, without 230, what would likely happen is if I say something defamatory about you on Twitter and you decide to sue me and you also decide to sue Twitter, you know, Twitter is going to have a First Amendment defense for that defamatory content. There might be discovery during the case. We might maybe put it to a jury trial. You know, at the end of the day, Twitter's going to spend a lot of money and maybe a lot of time and a lot of legal resources to get to an inevitable conclusion that says they have a First Amendment right to host that speech. All 230 does is it cuts out the middleman and it says, okay, let's just get to the inevitable conclusion and let's do it on like a motion to dismiss part of the phase of the trial so that we're not spending all these resources to get to, you know, the inevitable answer that for the First Amendment applies here. And, you know, that's great if we're talking about like, you know, big tech, for example, where people say, well, Section 230 is this gift to big tech. Well, if you really think about it, the websites like Google and Facebook and Twitter, if you count Twitter as big tech, they have the legal resources. They have some of the best lawyers in the world and money to fight these cases in court. And, and, you know, if they didn't have 230, they would just do what they've been doing in all these other countries where they operate globally. They'll adjust their policies and they'll fight battles where they want to fight them. Problem is, is that the smaller companies, these competitors to these larger companies, don't have those resources at the outset. And so while they might win their cases and they likely will win their cases under First Amendment defenses, they might not have the resources to fight those cases. And if they know they don't have the resources to fight it and they've got riskier content that could end up in a suit, they're probably going to either say, well, it's not worth us starting up, that legal risk isn't justified, or we're just going to take this kind of content down, or we're not going to allow that kind of content, or we're going to pre-screen content to just ensure that their legal risks are mitigated. But Knowing that they have 230, 
which will basically say like, it basically says, well, we're going to end the case immediately. You know, I don't need fancy lawyers to be able to plead a 230, you know, defense or even better because 230 has been around for so long and there's so much precedent that, um, you know, these cases aren't going to be brought. They can kind of enter the market knowing that no one's going to bring kind of a stupid case against them. They're able to start up. They're able to compete with big tech. They can host content that, you know, any kinds of content that they want to host. And they can fight for their users and say, well, you know what? Like, we want this content to be up. We want to promote the free expression of online content. We're not going to be so quick to take it down. So long answer for my top most interesting thing. But yes, to sum it up, Section 230 is actually a really, really boring law. And all of the interesting mechanisms of online content moderation, online expression really belong in the First Amendment. And that's more of an interesting discussion to have, I think. That's really interesting to hear, especially how it affects smaller companies and how just budgeting and legal resources comes into play. Of course, we always know that with bigger companies and strategy, but to start a company and have that be as a part of your strategy to launch your startup or not, that's not a part of it that I expected. So that's surprising to me and interesting. From your experience and what you're observing, whether it's in the corporate world or outside of it in the think tank, like where do you see things going with Section 230? Yeah, there's a lot of trends right now, a lot of proposals, a lot of proposal trends to amend Section 230. We have seen the occasional call for repealing Section 230. We've seen that with Lindsey Graham, we've seen it with Trump, but we've also seen it with Biden and the Biden administration as well. I don't think an all-out repeal is quite on the table, so that's not where my concerns are. However, there are some interesting amendment trends that I think we're going to continue seeing in 2021 that are worth keeping an eye on. We're seeing, for example, a lot of amendments around improving turnaround times for content moderation. So websites need to respond to users faster, or they might need to you know, start setting up a notice and takedown regime. We're seeing that kind of come up as well. You know, Similar to like the DMCA, well, can we set up a DMCA, but for other types of content, non-IP related content. We see a lot of that coming up in like acts like the PACT Act. So that was in summer towards the end of 2020. So I could see that coming back up. We've seen a lot of calls for transparency as well. So regulating transparency, which is incredibly difficult. And it might actually have First Amendment issues as well with forcing companies to say certain things in their transparency reports. I think transparency is an excellent goal. And I think more websites need to be a little bit better about it, but I don't think it should be regulated. And I think the other major sort of trend that we're also seeing is writing more carve-outs in 230 for specific types of content. And so the biggest issue there, it's, you know, I'm thinking of stuff like FOSTA-SESTA, for example, which wrote a carve-out for sex trafficking, the the new sex trafficking law that was enacted in 2018. There's lots of carve-outs in 230, right, There that already exist. And some of those carve-outs that already exist are like for intellectual property, for example. Section 230 doesn't apply to federal intellectual property claims. Section 230 doesn't apply to federal criminal law. So the DOJ could investigate a website without worrying about Section 230. You know, there's lots of other exceptions already built into 230, but Congress is using, our regulators are using that exception mechanism to write more. And so that's how we got the FOSTA-SESTA exception, which ended up turning out to be a disaster. It ended up not helping sex trafficking, like, you know, not actually helping combat sex trafficking. It actually hurt a lot of people in the long run, hurt a lot of legitimate companies. But then we're also seeing stuff for, like with the Earn It Act, if we're if we're writing an exception for CSAM, for example, I think we're seeing a lot of other stuff come up like, you know, self-harm. We need to have an exception for self-harm or we need to have an exception for hate speech or for misinformation or disinformation or political speech. As we know that all of those come with incredible difficulties and nuances that it wouldn't really make sense to build an exception to 230. But I do think that's another big one that we're probably going to see. And then the last one for proposal trends is that we're seeing a lot of carve-outs for small tech. And so some of these proposals, I think Josh Hawley has had a couple that have said, well, take away 
keep 230 for the small tech companies, but take it away for big tech companies. And obviously the problem, the first problem with that being, well, what is a big tech company and what is a small tech company? There hasn't been a lot of thought onto like what it really means to label something a smaller, a small tech company or a big tech company. But then also you're creating an incentive for smaller companies to sell out. So when they get to a certain threshold, so if they know they're going to lose 230 and they're going to take on all this, you know, extra liability, Maybe they decide, well, instead of staffing up our resources for lawyers, we sell to Google or Facebook. And so then inherently, you know, big tech gets bigger. That's a really interesting point. I think this is the first time, at least in the history that I've been alive in, that I've seen corporations really use the resources to do what others are significantly failing to do, but it comes at a cost and a lot of work internally. What are some of the challenges in creating these policies internally from the other side? Yeah. So, you know, just speaking based on my opinion alone and just kind of what I've seen from research and, you know, from working, you know, for starters, it's scale. Scale is a huge problem when it comes to content moderation. So think about, you know, think about companies like, we can think about companies like Facebook and Google, but I actually think other companies to think about that are interesting are like Omegle, for example, or, you know, like a company like OnlyFans or like some, some of these smaller websites that have significantly small amount, like small number of employees, but because they're on the internet and because they've gone viral, they have a ton of content. And so you need to like operational, just like not even thinking about the policymaking that aside, you need to think about the operational aspects of like, you know, how many vendor teams am I going to need to be able to handle X amount of content and how much content they're going to handle per week and per day? How quick are the turnaround times going to be? You know, if you're getting like thousands and thousands, thousands of pieces of content, how many people do you need? And can you outsource any of it to like uh, automation or is automation going to be uh, like satisfied enough for the user on the other side that's like receiving a decision about that content? Can automated tools make nuanced decisions based on the policies that you've put in place. So just the operational issues alone is what makes, it really is what makes content moderation so difficult at the beginning. But then when you're writing policies, that's also super difficult because when you think about it, the internet and society is constantly evolving on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, you often see complaints about how, well, like, why is Twitter you know, enacting, implementing their rules for one thing, but they're not for another thing. And it's because every time a case comes up, every time a piece of content comes up, there's an entirely different way you can apply your rules to it. And there's an entirely, like maybe there's another edge case or gray area that your original policy that you crafted, it may not apply to this specific case, this like specific edge case. Um, You know, of course you've got like your routine, like, okay, look, if you put nudity on a site that doesn't allow nudity, then that comes down and that's easy. But when you're talking about stuff like political misinformation or like even COVID-19, you have to get to a granular level with these policies and say like, you know, okay, if it's coming from this source and it's saying this thing, then this is the decision we'll make versus, you know, some other, and then another new source comes up and another new lie or factor or some bit of research comes out about this topic. And now we, we need to make a change again. So I think the fact that it is so dynamic and it isn't a static process and it, there is no like right or wrong way to do things because you have so much freedom writing policies that help you make determinations based on human rights, based on the public interest, based on who you are, like what your company is and your values. It's incredibly difficult. And then new content comes through and you have to like, you look at it, you're like, well, I've never accounted for this. And now you need to rewrite your policies all over again. And it's really embedded in the company culture and embedded in the people and the application of the law. So all of that stuff within the operations of it definitely gets interesting. 
I know I asked you where you see things going. My last question for you is where do you want things to go? What's your personal preference or opinion based on your expertise where there could be a balance found? Yeah, when it comes to Section 230, I always ask the question, what's the problem you're trying to solve, the specific problem you're trying to solve about the internet? And how will amending Section 230 actually lead to those results of solving that problem? And no one has given me that answer. No one's been able to pin that answer down. No one's able to agree on what that answer should be, which tells me that Section 230 is working as intended. I'm one of those Section 230 absolutists that just, you know, I don't believe that there's an amendment to be made about 230 because I think all of the issues are underlying social problems and operational and technological problems that need to be solved in other ways. So my hope is that we stop talking about Section 230 because I think we're losing a lot of time and a lot of productivity talking about, like I said, what is Section 230, an inherently boring civil procedure law. And I want to start having more conversations about how we can innovate with content moderation. So I want to see more research about like, how do we amplify some of these more marginalized voices in our online communities? How do we prevent radicalization, for example? What's the best approach to like, you know, the whole echo chamber theory, like with Parler, for example, like, was Parler a good thing that it had, you know, an echo chamber of conservatives? Or was it a bad thing? What are the trade-offs when it comes to moderating uh, political speech on websites? Like, is it a good thing that Trump has been removed from all these social media sites? Or was it better when we could like see him and know what he was doing and were fact checks working or were they not working or how are people perceiving this information? That's the kind of conversations that I'd love to have. And also, how do we do our jobs better? So what technological ways can we improve content moderation? Mike Masnick has an excellent paper out about how we should be thinking about moving to a protocols, not platforms approach to content moderation, where the user has the control over what kind of content they see in their feeds, and they're the ones curating that information. Those are the conversations, and those are the kind of ideas and things that I'm hoping that we can, like, you know, once we've stopped being distracted by Section 230, we can kind of step into and start having really hard but really really important conversations about what we want online communities to look like years on out. At this point, online communities are our real communities with living at home. So that's definitely the next social issue to deal with. And with everything that's been going on, I mean, this is unprecedented times in history and not regulation and more rules aren't always the problem. These are human problems, not systematic problems. The people in the system keep repeating these issues, but it's not the system itself. But sometimes it is. In this case, the technology is co-creating with people. So it's co-created with people. We need a cultural upgrade in the people as much as the legal upgrade in the legal industry. I like that. I really like the culture upgrade. I'm going to be stealing that. That's a really good point. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. I learned so much from you. You can steal that one thing. Anything last minute you want to add? Any advice maybe for smaller companies or where to look at? Any advice for lawyers who deal with tech companies of what to keep their eyes on? My biggest piece of advice when we're talking about small internet companies that are thinking about hosting user-generated content is to start thinking about content moderation and trust and safety first. This seems to be a lot like the privacy space, in my opinion, where we kind of all started getting serious about privacy only a couple of years ago and realizing that we needed to build privacy into our, like, you know, privacy by design. We need to build privacy up front into our products. I think the same thing needs to be thought about when we're with content moderation, with trust and safety. So, you know, if you're deciding at the ground level that you're going to start an internet company, yes, Section 230 is great and it will apply to you in the United States. And that's all like fine and dandy, but 
Section 230 isn't going to substitute some of the good operational practices and ways in which we can improve online, you know, your online space. Like Section 230 is not going to write those moderation policies for you. That's going to be really brilliant people. So trust and safety should be top of mind when you are starting these companies, because it's one of those things where you're not going to want to have to build that. You're not going to want to staff that up and build those policies and procedures in later once you have too many people on your site, especially when like if you decide to start out as like, you know, Parler learned this, for example, they started out as we're going to be the free speech platform. And then I think Parler started to realize that the more people that started switching over there, the more difficult things started to become as a result of them not having the policies and procedures in place to be able to moderate, you know, some of this awful or I guess awful is the right way to put it, awful content. They were kicked off of AWS and now they don't have a service to run anymore. And there's there's a complicated discussion to have there, but I almost wonder if that could have been different had they considered some of like, you know, the content moderation and trust and safety aspects of their service before they had gotten started. I think that's super important to have, like, we always tell founders or new companies that they need to have client-facing agreements for their own protection. I mean, of course, terms of use and terms and conditions, but nobody really invests that amount of time and money upfront to build some of these procedures and processes of how to deal with your employees and how your employees will deal with the content and the clients outside of that just basic client agreement. And these can really cover your butt in the future and save a lot of time and money. Absolutely. And you know, All I think investment the reason, up front, like, a lot of savings later. Exactly. That's exactly it. I think the reason that we don't think about that sometimes is because the trust and safety teams and content moderation, they aren't product specific. They're not bringing in money to the service. But as you said, in the end, it's going to save you a hell of a lot of money, just like privacy by design is going to save you a hell of a lot of money in the future. So it's worth the investment up front. Well, thank you. Thank you for this conversation. It was super interesting and it was so nice to have you on the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This is incredible. Always happy to chat about this topic. And with that, my lovely friends, I will leave you with some advice. Dream big, be brave, and be happy. I'm already proud of you. Thanks for listening to Lovely with me, your host, Bahar Ansari. If you like this show, please subscribe and share with your friends, colleagues, and family. And please leave a review on iTunes. If you miss me before then, check out baharansari.com or connect with me on social media. Join us next week when we talk more about laws, love, and life. See you soon.